Will you please welcome the truly wonderful Peggy Seeger. A friend of us all, Mr Ian Clayton. Thank you. One of the stories early on in the book is you go to Scotland and you meet a, an elderly gypsy, Scottish gypsy, and he's, he's called the memory. And he's, he's teaching a young man to, to become one day a memory himself. He'll know all the, the, the stories himself. And you talk about how the best stories go from mouth to ear. You hold by that strongly throughout your life, don't you? Well, one of the real strengths of the folk club was that singers stood up. I know this is not strictly a folk club, but in the early days they were folk clubs. And when you stood up, you didn't sing from a piece of paper. It was all up here. And this is your most important device up here. You sing or you speak into someone's ear and they pass it on and it cannot be taken from you, excepting by killing you. Uh, I forget his name, but he was, he was a traveler, a Scots traveler. They don't call themselves gypsies. The gypsies are the Romanies. The Scots travelers are the ones who were displaced by the clearances, which was in the early 1800s, I think, wasn't it? Yes. And uh, Belle Stewart took us, she was a traveler, took us to see the memory would you like to watch him working and he was an old he was so old he was literally almost like a turtle and he was in bed and there was a young lad just sitting right next to him like this just concentrating and he was relating the lineage of the Stuarts that went back into the 1700s the 1600s as much as he could and he had learned them as a young boy and had been adding whenever there was a, a birth or a death he had it in his head and he was and occasionally he would ask the boy uh, now tell me about so and so who, who was born in 1850 and the boy would say oh yes that was uh, so and so and so and his wife was so and so and he had those children it was astounding and he didn't pay any attention to us he was just bringing it forth from his memory which I can do with a lot of my songs. I can just recite them to you like poetry because they're up, they're up there. I'm going to say, I mean, you're part of that tradition yourself of, of mouth to, to ear. But you chose to make words on a paper as well when you wrote your, your memoir. And you describe it as holding yourself over a flame. What, what do you mean by that? Well, there's lots of confessions these days in memoirs. This is not an autobiography. It's not a biography. The biography was written by, by Jean Friedman, who spoke just then, and she took 10 years to write it. She practically lived in our house. She knows more about me than I do. If I can't remember a date when I did something, I phone her up, say, Jean, what year did I do that? So this is just bits and scraps of what I think is important. Holding yourself over a flame. There's some shocking things I've done in my life. There's some things I'm very not, not at all proud of. And that's true of all of us. 
And one of the things that really disturbs me about being up on stage, even being placed that little bit higher than you, which has to be done, because if, if I'm down on the ground, I'm speaking into a lot of the, where the most of your bone is, which is in your head, and you will be absorbing that, and it won't, it, it won't be heard back there. It has to be heard all the way back. But the minute I'm on a pedestal, people think, oh, she's special. You know, oh, let's look, oh my goodness. And it's like being a blooming god, and they think that you're something different. You're not. You still squeeze pimples. You still go to the loo. You still, what the heck? Uh, so in a way, what I was trying to do was show that I'm not saying I'm the same as you. Nobody's the same as anybody else. We're all unique. Everybody is unique. There's nobody like you, 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 you. There's nobody and there's nobody like me. I just happen to be public. And I put myself on the line and I did it. I was articulate. And I think in many cases I was poetic and I tried to use different styles of writing in it. So uh, it's shameless. I haven't dissed anybody. I have people that I have hurt I have people who've hurt me, but I'm not going to write it down because once it's in print, you can't take it back. It's like page one, whatever appears on page one, you can't apologize for it on page 50. No, it's, uh, it's there. So I'm just, it's just things that I think you ought to know. Uh, not ought to know. You might want to know. You might not want to know it at all. You might pick it up and lay it down on page, after page 10. But it's just what I chose. Let's start with your, your childhood then. <clears throat> it's an idyllic childhood in some respects. You've got very good mother and, and father. Your father's born in 1886, it's, which is... December 14th. It's extraordinary to think I'm sitting in a room on a Sunday tea time with a, a lady whose dad was born in 1886. We've three centuries. Um, and your mother, you called her Dio, and she was a very good uh, classical composer but she, wonderful pianist yeah yeah and you had a porch in a, that that house in maryland and people were coming all the time you had an open house well we lived in washington dc and my father worked with um franklin roosevelt during the depression in the 30s as you do <laughs> as you do he was part of the Works Progress Administration where they were trying to get people to stay at home, not to go up pick up and just go because of the Dust Bowl, because of depression, because of... The, it was a horrendous time in America. And people were just leaving everything and just heading across the country, the same way as migrants are coming here now because where they live is impossible. So my father was employed by Roosevelt who had a number of projects. It was the Works Progress Administration. Some of it was building roads. Some of it was building cultural centers. Some of it was making people feel proud of who they were, where they were. Mm. So he would go to a community and he'd see there were people who knew how to make fiddles and he would encourage that and the, and the, and the government would give them grants. And my father was he started collecting songs then. I mean, he was a big, tall, rather, uh, I, I call him now a would-be minor European aristocrat. 
uh, that he he had been brought up to think that you know his his story is kind of in the book, uh, and to think of him going into these miners' communities and textile communities and collecting songs and stories and putting them back in the Library of Congress in an archive that he helped to, to open up for these stories to be there. And it's still there, the archive. That's where I'm sending all my papers. They will all be in that archive that my father... And so that's... I don't think that answers the question. Um, as a matter of fact, I've forgotten the question. <laughs> doesn't matter. It's answered the question in a better way. Oh, yes, a lot of people visited. Yeah. Um, people of, of, of all sorts, they visited. Mm. I'm not gonna, I am not going. won't press you on giving stories about them, but Woody Guthrie used to come with, with Woody Brother Guthrie, Peter. Led Billy Led visited. Billy came. Pete Seeger came. Alan yeah. Lomax came. Ben Botkin came. George, George Corson came. There's an extraordinary story in, in, in it as well where... One day an artist comes and he puts a canvas out in the front of the porch and encourages you to splash about in paint. It was a porch about the size of twice this here. Mm -hmm. And uh, we used to sit on the front steps and just watch people going by. In Washington, D.C. It was a big house, yeah. big house. So this guy came and he spread a big canvas, which is about half the size of this rug, and he splashed paint on it and told us to just jump in it. Well, we were kids. I would have been about 10, my brother 12, my sister 8. And so we jumped in with bare feet, because you walked in bare feet during the summer. You didn't put shoes on. Uh, and then we splashed. It was oil paint. And then we traipsed into the house with oil paint all over our feet. And my mother went ballistic. Yeah. <laughs> Jackson Pollock was a bad name in our <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I don't know if he burnt that one, but uh, he, he did burn some of his, and an awful lot of his are worth burning, I think. Yeah. One day when, you, I think you, you were about 12, you might have been younger, you were in a department store with your mother, and you got lost, and a, a lady found you. Just tell us who that lady was. She was a very statuesque uh, black woman. We didn't call them black women then. We called them Negro women, which is, of course, a word for black. It's not used now because it's the basis of the word nigger. And uh, she was gentle, she was kind, and she stayed with me until my mother turned up. Well, my mother was a piano teacher who taught 24-7, seven days a week. No, not Sunday, she didn't. And she needed help. Four children, a big house... And we had one, because white women didn't come to work in your house. We had Marianne who came from Monday to Friday. That would be from about nine till about four. And we had Mamie Harrison who came on Sunday when she'd been to church. So my mother needed someone for Saturday. And this woman said yes. That was Libba Cotton, the woman who made up Freight Train. And she uh, took, and she took the... Imagine. As one does. We've got a little clip. <laughs> Let's have a little clip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm going to play freight train. And I'm going to play it in the style of cotton picking style. That's with two fingers. This finger and that one. And my thumb. That's two fingers, see. And when you play with three, it's a right kind of style. But I'm going to play this in cotton picking style. 
I think if I get lost in a, a department store, I'd like to be found. Well, <laughs> we didn't know she could play like that. Oh, did you, she didn't. You didn't know until she came to your house. No, why would we know? Because I. <laughs> I mean, she'd, had, she'd played until she was 14, and she got married when she was 14. When your period started, you had to get married yeah, as yeah. a girl, uh, especially, well, not in the white, uh, the so-called white. Oh, my Lord, white. Um, you came in as a, a domestic servant, and we always kept the guitar on the wall. And she'd been there for several years before we discuss, discovered. I came into the kitchen, and there she's playing the guitar, but the wrong way around. So those of you who play guitar, you'll understand what that means. You can't do the big old thumb on the bass strings because your thumb is on the treble strings. Everything is backward. Mike and I learned to play it left-handed, and it was bloody difficult. Yeah. You know? Yes, but Mike, Mike took her over after my mother died, and he took her out on, on concerts, and he opened for her for years, and she, she blossomed. And now she's seen as, as one of the originators yeah. of that. Piedmont style, North Carolina music, mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah, they're putting up a, a, a metal, a, a big statue to her in, in, I think it's Chapel, it's not Chapel Hill, I forget, there's a trio of, 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 of um, Raleigh, Chapel Hill, and another one, and in one of those where she was born, there's a statue to her. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, wonderful. That was Leba. Well, she was wonderful. Let's get you to college then. Um, you go to college in... Cambridge, Boston, Cambridge in Boston, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it, the college that you go to, it's like Harvard, but for women, is that right? Or, or... Well, we used all of the Harvard facilities. Yeah. It was a place where the Harvard <laughs> boys could find somebody to... <laughs> well, a lot of women went there so as to nab a Harvard man. Yeah. Uh, I got into it. I was turned down at the other three colleges that I wanted to go to, even though I was an A student. Uh, I think my father helped get me in there because he went to Harvard and he went to one of my music classes with me and he said, Peggy, this is wonderful. At last they're teaching work the way they should have done 50 years ago <laughs> when I was here. Uh, so I, you had all the facilities, but the Harvard boys were feral. They really were. They were... They were not, a lot of them were not terribly nice people, uh, the ones that went after us. But I, I don't know. I, I shouldn't say things like that. Did, you went but at I a time... But I just did. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, don't, it don't matter. They won't say it all to anybody. Um, you, you went at a time when the un-American activities thing was doing its worst... And I've got to pick this up to read it, because I can't see it from Have there. Have we gotten stuck in my childhood? No, no, we've got to move on. But you said um, that the Un-American Activities Blacklist robbed your generation of its best cultural dreamers and creators. Do you still hold by that? Yep, absolutely. The number of, of Hollywood actors and what were called actresses then, if anyone had been involved in left-wing politics, and a huge number had been in the 30s. My father was a member of the Communist Party in the 1930s. I didn't find out until I was 45 that he... And I said, why did you tell us, Charlie, that you were a, a member of the Communist Party? He said, well, it was better you didn't know, you know, so that you couldn't be asked questions or anything. So it cleared Hollywood of some of the best actors, it, writers... Poets, singers, 
musicians. It just wiped the cultural slate clean. It really, really did. Mm. And script writers, some of them, one of our best ones, I'm trying to remember his name, he went to Mexico and started working under a, a, a nom de plume yeah. and never got his name on the, on the, film, on the scripts that he wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Was it one of the reasons why you wanted to escape America then? Would that be a fair question or was it something entirely different? Ah, you came to Europe because you were in, invited by, by uh, no. Alan Lomax. No, 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 no. My oh. mother died when I was 18. She was a, my father had lost his job because mm. of McCarthy. Uh, my, brother, my brother Pete lost the, 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 being able to work with the Weavers because the Weavers immediately were boycotted, blacklisted. Yes. It was, a, it was an incredible blacklist. Uh, and my mother died uh, of cancer when I was 18. She was the money earner, piano teaching. Uh, and we had to sell a big house. And I had to stop going to college because the money wasn't there anymore. So my father, uh, he married again. And he sent me over to my older step, my half-brother, Charles. Uh, I call him my brother because he had two batches of children, three boys, Charles, John, and Pete. And then that marriage didn't work. He married my mother, I had Mike, Peggy, Barbara, and Penny. So there were seven of us. I always called him my brother, not half-brother. There was nothing half about Pete. <laughs> yeah. But you... So I came, I came... You did come to Europe, and, and was it... A, a, what, were you invited by Alan Lomax? Is that no, 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 no. How, no. how did you come to Europe? No, I, I, it, it didn't work out living with Charles. His marriage was falling apart. Yeah. And so I took to the thumb and I started hitchhiking around Belgium and, and Denmark. And it's a long story. It's all in the book. Yeah. Uh, and I was, in a, I was in a youth hostel in Copenhagen when I got a phone call from Alan Lomax because uh, he had a job, a TV thing that they wanted a female who sang and played the banjo and of course they got double duty with me yeah. uh, and there wasn't much money in it but he said you should come to England what he really wanted was me to be in, to come to England to be an English version of the Weavers you know about the Weavers yes. it's why Goodnight Irene is so popular and Weem Away and songs like that and you haven't been in, in England, this is 1956 we're on now, you haven't been in England long when you, you met Ewan McCall. And he, it's a long story, we're, we're getting stuck. Well, we won't get stuck on it. But, um, I will. <laughs> just, just, okay, quickly gloss over it then if you want. But he, you I think he was singing um, Mac the Knife in, a, in, in the Thetney Opera, wasn't he? Well, when I came over, Alan Lomax, his girlfriend, uh, dressed me up like a model and, I w and led me into a, 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 the place where he was living, where it was obvious that I was being auditioned for this group that he wanted to form. And it was just in a little Chelsea house for the basement. And it was full of men, plus one woman, Shirley Collins, and this funny-looking man over in the corner who was just smoking and looking at me like this. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, he asked me to go and sit, see him at the theater, and he was playing the singer in Mac the Knife. Yeah. Anyway, he was a funny-looking man. And he was... 
and he was not my idea of what I was looking for. He was shorter than I was. He was married and had a child, and he was 20 years older. But he was head over heels in love. I mean, he was, oh my goodness, I, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're walking under a ladder and somebody drops something on you. That's me. I walked under the ladder. And it took us three years for me to say, okay, let's go, have a go at it. But in between, you went back to America. Oh, with, yes. With your Lambretta. You bought a Lambretta while you were in England and yeah. had a big tour around on it. I went up to, I went up to uh, Aberdeen in it on my own. And then I came back down. And in 1956, women didn't do those things. Uh, then I went back to America with the Lambretta and... <laughs> Then I went from New York to Chicago on it by myself. <laughs> That's a thousand miles. To play uh, at the Gate of Hall, the famous yeah. club. Yeah, yeah. And, and the person I was playing with, I did an hour, then he did an hour, I did an hour, then he did an hour. From 10 o'clock at night until 4 o'clock in the morning was Big Bill Brunsey. And yeah, yeah, I know it's, my past is peppered with these people. And hmm. um, yeah, Big Bill was... He was absolutely stunning. Well, we didn't talk. We didn't have a whole lot to talk about. Uh, uh, you know, a bumptious middle-class girl singing sweet songs with a banjo and a guitar and him singing his whole life. Just, yeah, yeah Big Bill Brunsey. Believe it or not, he once played in a cinema in, the, in a town next to here. This is Pondiflat, and he played in a, a cinema in Castleford. Hmm. And when Rev was a young man, he worked in a printer's, and he found the original poster for the... No kidding. ...for the Brunsey gig at the cinema. Well, Ewan McCall and yeah. Big Bill Brunsey used to gig together, yeah. going to places. Yeah. And Big Bill Brunsey loved... He told me that Ewan's singing was like a white nigger. Wow. He's, and that was a compliment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I told Ewan and he was thrilled because he just sang unaccompanied. <laughs> I've been a hand found weaver. <laughs> you know, for loom weaver. Yeah. So. And meanwhile, Ewan is completely lovesick and can't bear the thought that you're in America and he's mm. still in England. Mm. And you talk to him on a. I can't imagine how people did transatlantic phone calls in the 1950s. We didn't. It, it was horrendously... Yeah. Uh, yeah. So he called me this one day, and I, I was... I, I needed... I was doing a, 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 a program for Los Angeles Radio. They wanted some folk songs, but they wanted a modern song that was cheerful love song. I didn't know any modern love... I hardly knew any songs that were cheerful. Uh, so I said, I need a short modern love song. And he said, uh, well, how about this? And he sang me first time ever. And that happened to be nine months before you were born in September. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how clever of you. 1959. Yeah. yeah so you I was see, born in September, 1959. I know. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you have been Googled. Yeah. I also oh, Googled right. Pontefract, and yeah. it's a pity I hate licorice. Yeah. <laughs> I, can't, it, it, I can't stand it. I like fennel, but I can't stand licorice. Yeah. It makes me want to yeah. never have liked it. Hey, you, you, you lived 
for a short while, not far from here, though, didn't you? You lived near Selby for a, a while. Uh, yes, I when I wanted to write Ewan McCall songbook, because there's, a, there's a, a mate to that book over there, which is yeah. called the Ewan McCall songbook. Yeah. Mine has 150 songs in it. His has 200. Mine weighs three and a half pounds. His weighs four. Yeah. So, yeah, so I have them both, but I'm, I'm practically sold out of those now. Mm. But... Uh, I get more if I'm not wanting, but it's horrendously heavy. Let's have, let's have, a, let's have a, a listen. That's a beautiful voice. This is the old way I used First to sing it. Time ever I saw your face. Incredible, and it gives me goosebumps when I read it, and it gives me goosebumps now because I'm trying to the, the poignancy of him singing that to you know, over a, a, a crackling telephone. Well, he didn't sing it oh, like didn't that. Sing I'm, it. I made it like that. Oh, you made it, of course. It was quite simple when he sang it. Yeah. He didn't do flowery singing, not really, yeah. and that was a bit flowery. But you'll know what to do with it. Uh, yes, I, I did. I felt that it, the tune, you know, what the way you and McCall wrote songs, some songs, is very interesting. I don't think we've discussed this, no. and I'm not sure it's in the book. But he wrote songs that are in the folk idiom. You can't write a folk song. 
a folk song becomes. Yeah. And so, and there's no proper definition of a folk song, but generally speaking, the old folk songs came from the working class community because that was the only kind of songs they had. And that's why they're so simple, and that's why some of them are so uh, full of cliches, but they have lasted. So why not look and see how they have lasted so long? They have things in them that are unbelievable, that make people want to keep singing them generation after generation. Uh, so... <clears throat> He wanted to write songs that sounded like folk songs. And I can, st I, I still do this. I know I have written some that sound like folk songs. That One was of, based on an old Scottish song, though, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, but the, what he would do is he would take the first line. He said, I like this, to, I like the feeling of Friendless yeah. Mary, which is a song he used to sing. They called her Friendless Mary O. And he would take the first line, uh, of, of a friend, this is an example, maybe not. I know the last line is from Friendless Mary, it's the same tune as Friendless Mary. But he would take the first line and he would change it. He would sing the tune over and over, the folk song, sing it over and over, then change just the first line until he had a new first line that fitted in with the other three. Got yeah. me? So he's got one line by Ewan McCall, three by the folk. Then when he got one that fitted, he would change the second line. Yeah. And so he had a new first, a new second, and then until they were all changed. And people would say, oh, that sounds familiar. I've done this with one song of mine that is on my album called How I Long for Peace. We should, we should address the issue of the Roberta Flack version of it, which is how a lot of people it's came. Lovely. It's lovely. You it's, didn't like it at first, though, did you? No, it was horrible. <laughs> Well, Ewan, Ewan said, I wrote a song that was an hors d'oeuvre, a starter. He said, and she's changed it into the main meal. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, it's been covered by a thousand people, this song, this yeah. simple little song, each of them in their own way, and you haven't heard it properly until you've heard it in, in hip-hop or you've heard it in gospel or you've heard it in what I call barbecue quartet. It's, uh, uh, it's been given any number of... Uh, Elvis did a version of it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Ewan said it, he's singing it as this Juliet's at the top of the post office tower and, <laughs> and Romeo's down at the bottom. <laughs> yeah. It's a personal song. And I felt very embarrassed singing it the first time ever I lay with you, all the guys sitting there. And the story of our first night together is not... <laughs> I suppose we won't. <laughs> we won't. We don't need to repeat that. No, one. we don't need to repeat that. I'll move on because I'm just aware of time. But um, you, you started travelling in earnest as well. You, you wanted to stay in Europe, but then the opportunity came up for you to go to Russia in 19, at the 1957 Youth Conference in Russia. And you went and you performed at the Bolshoi Ballet. You sang Michael Roll the Boat Ashore at the Bolshoi, didn't you? <laughs> Is it so? Have I made that up? This was the meeting of people, activist people from all over the world, and I was singing gospel songs. Yeah. What? <laughs> uh, there's a lot of funny stuff in that in that chapter about how I really embarrassed you and by singing religious songs in a communist country. <laughs> I blush to think of it, yeah. Uh, the Bolshoi, the, the Bolshoi Theatre is something to see. 
It takes you about, if you walk kind of fast, it's about 20, it's about half a minute to get to the middle of the stage. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we were on, I was on with Guy Carawan, who's a good singer, a good man, a good activist. Uh, But we only sang, you know, Michael Rowe, The Boat Ashore, and we didn't even sing We Shall Overcome, nothing like that, which you wouldn't do in Russia anyway, I suppose, at that time. And the lights went on, and I nearly pissed myself. I was was so... Seven, something like seven balconies. Chum, dejum, dejum, dejum. I'm, I'm putting it in a nutshell. And I wrote the book so that I wouldn't have to tell people the stories. <laughs> yeah. So it, I find it very hard to to put it in a nutshell because it really, when you tell a story, you have to, yeah. uh, my present partner, Irene, if you ask her about something, she tells it like an Irish story. And you think, okay, the, there's the plot, dump, dump, Little Red Riding Hood walking through the wood, and she meets the wolf, and then she goes to her grandmother's house. Well, that'll take Irene 10 minutes to tell, because she'll tell you what the trees were, and what animals there were, and what the wolf said. And <laughs> so it's missing an awful lot of the subtlety that I hope is in the book. <laughs> yeah. You're giving a lovely flavour, though. <laughs> you went... The opportunity came up, though, to go from Russia by train on the Trans-Siberian Railway, this is in 57 again, to China. Mm-hmm. I mean, China's only been a revolution for seven or eight years by that. Yep. 1949, wasn't it, Chinese yeah. revolution? Yeah. So Mao's been in power for seven or eight years. And... Uh, you got in bother, big style, with the Americans who well, forbid you to go, basically, didn't you? Well, I didn't go with a delegation uh, to, to Russia. I went on my own. Uh, and I did a, quite a lot of singing when I was in Russia. And the Russians sent me here, there, there, to different parts of, of Russia um, to, to sing. Was it? No, that was the Pol- Polish who did that yeah. um, later on. Um, and the American, the whole of the American quote delegation, which was about 300 people, was invited by the Chinese government to go to China. Now that's nine days on the Trans-Siberian Railway across Russia to get to China. Uh, and it was against the rules to go to People's China, Communist China, at that time. It was in our passports. You shall not go there. And their excuse was, we have no American protection for you once you're there. Uh, and, and, you know, Christian Herter was the Secretary of State at the time, and he phoned every one of the 300 people and said, you are facing hell when you get back home. They were all young people, excepting for three or four older people that I used to think were spies, but I wasn't sure. And um, so in the end, only 41 of us went, and I was... My father phoned, he said, it doesn't matter what you're going to face when you get back, you won't get an experience like this again. Sure. Just go, go. Yeah. So I did. Um, and it took nine days. It was either seven days or nine days, I can't remember. And we were all terribly constipated with eating the r- r- black bread and people's pop and no vegetables and no fruit and anything like that. So the first thing the Chinese had to do was give us all enemas. <laughs> <laughs> Now, this is what I mean. You're putting yourself on a flame. <laughs> and, you know, it's not shocking. It's just, it's just what, <laughs> it's, it's what one does. 
Chairman Mao shook hands with you. Well, I shook hands with him. There's a difference. Yeah, it was at a it was at a a a, 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 a meeting of all of the Chinese dignitaries. But um, Alin, oh gosh, I've forgotten their names. The one that spent so much time with us, the one who had been a, 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 a an opium addict and who cured himself when he became a communist, took himself out in a boat with just enough food and no opium and nearly went mad. He, he threw away the oars and just went drifting. To and he, he became quite high up in the communist party. I'm trying to remember. It's Chou Enlai. Chou Enlai. Yeah, Chou Enlai. Yeah. Yes. He signed your banjo, didn't he? Yeah. I don't, I, and I don't know what became of that banjo head. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's get back from China then. And I'm still only about 22. Yeah, I know. We're all right. Uh, but you get back when you get back to to England. You've got to work out a way that you can stay in Europe. No, nope, not yet. Not yet. Well. No, I wasn't. I, I was going to go home. Yeah. But um, Ewan worked out that there were that there was the radio ballads to be worked on. Charles Parker, who you know about radio ballads? Anybody? Yeah. Uh, they're a form of a radio program where you have four elements. You have the you're going to make a song say about a, a historic train accident where a, a man saved. Uh, a situation by riding his runaway train in Derbyshire down. And it was a hell of a crash. It actually happened. And uh, the BBC decided to make a program about this. And Charles Parker hired Ewan to go and record the people who were involved. Uh, and then Ewan made music to go with it. And then they needed somebody who could orchestrate it. And so Ewan got me a job coming when I was just coming back from Russia to go and be the musician on that. It was, I'd never done anything like this before, ever. But, you know, I jumped into almost, I call myself the yes girl. I just said yes to everything. Uh, so I came to England and worked on that. But my work permit ran out and I was kicked out to go to France. I wasn't going to be with you and McCall, no. You weren't at that point. No, no. Even no. though you were working on the ra yeah. radio ballads, yeah. I think. And the even... radio ballads, by the way, you should get, if you ever get a chance to listen to them, there's about eight or nine, I think. There's just eight. Yeah, yeah. And, and the... they're, they're wonderful. Topic Records re released them on CD a few years ago. Really good. I think you can still get them on, yeah, yeah. on Bandcamp. Yeah, yeah. But they, they, they consist of sound effects, <coughs> songs, instrumentation, and interviews with the actual people. And the main thing about... The, the, these uh, was at the time, which was 1958, whenever they were talk, talking anything about working class people, they didn't say they'd come up to Yorkshire and they'd record you about your life, madam. And then it wouldn't be you talking about, they'd give it to an actor. Yeah. Who would then use plum comes with the cheek talking about it, which didn't sound at all. Uh, but we insisted on using the actual recordings, and that was revolutionary at the time. Now it's normal. Now it's normal. But back and then it wasn't. Coal miners, yep. herring fishermen, boxers, 
teenagers, fairground workers, teenagers, gypsies. It's wonderful, wonderful yeah. stuff. Mm -hmm. But get the first eight radio ballads. Just listen to one of them. If you only have one to listen to, I should listen to Singing the Fishing. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, about herring fishing. Yeah. We got a, an award for that. Three score and ten boys and men. It's, it's got yeah. Let's let's take you to France now, because you're still trying to avoid going back to America. And are you safe in France then, from being? I'm, ju back I'm to just, America? I'm just living in France and having a good time. <laughs> okay. And Ewan keeps coming over, and we finally decide to to live together and <laughs> I turn out to be pregnant <laughs> yes I can laugh now uh, uh, but we decided to have a child when we were so delighted that at last this chase had finished after three years uh, and so uh, I couldn't get into England because the 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 English government was hand in hand with the American government and they were trying to get me back. I was well, I was sent back to France when I tried to get into England and the, and the French kicked me over the border to, I'm try, trying to remember the order, they kicked me over the border to Belgium and the Belgians kicked me over the border to I think the Netherlands and back to Belgium. I was at night, they just dumped me. Uh, without a lambretta, I didn't have a lambretta. I, I didn't think I might have bought another one at that time. <laughs> and then I was dumped back in France, where the French either slipped up or chose to slip up. And so I was pregnant there, and I couldn't get into England. 59, 58, June 58, July, August, September, October, November, December, and in January I began to get worried. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and you couldn't marry you and either. Couldn't marry was, him. Was no, so I married somebody else. <laughs> yeah, a nice man called Alex Campbell. Do you remember Alex Campbell? Oh, wasn't he wonderful? Yeah. <laughs> he was a rake. He was very kind to have a, to. Oh yeah. Let you have a marriage of convenience. Yeah, I was Margaret. I was Mrs. Campbell for two years. Yeah, yeah. He was a lovely man. And did that help you get back into England? Oh yes, brought me back right away. Mm. On Ewan's birthday, January 25th, 1959, in the morning. Mm. And my son was, our son was born in March, March 4th, 1959. Mm. And then we were together for 30, let's see, 30 years. Yeah. It worked. This seems a convenient place to have a break, but I just want to mention something before we do, that when your first child was a baby, you took him on tour with you to, to entertain moose hunters in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to talk a bit about Actually, that? Actually, they were gold miners. They, oh, gold miners. They happened to hunt moose. Okay. Yeah. But that's the hard life of a folk musician yeah. at that time. Who on earth would, would take a guitar, a banjo, an auto harp, and a dulcimer? And I think, no, not the concertina yet. And uh, boxes, uh, no boxes of records yet, but a six-month-old baby yeah. uh, on a tour that was going to last two and a half months. Who would do it? And I didn't use disposable nappies. I washed them every day, every night. Ewan did not wash nappies. He washed nothing. I was, I was the wife. I did it. I fell for it. I felt it was my job. 
Anyway, he wouldn't have known how to do it. That's what. That's a good defense gentleman. He said, how do you do this? You know, there's a wonderful poem about why Dorothy Wordsworth didn't write poetry. And uh, she says, there's this, it says, she's writing in her studio and she says, I was, I was dreaming about clouds and daffodils and no William uh, the, the, the tea is in the in the, in the cupboard at Newton. and so she said and, and it was a lovely day and it was breeze the William I've shown you where the teapot is and she finally gives up and, and she says oh let's take let's take a walk and you can write about daffodils or something like that mm. so uh, but on all of that we wrote songs he, we never wrote songs together Ever, never. Uh, he he turned up with the song already finished and ready. I turned up with it needing stuff because I was just learning. I learned so much, so much. I, he wouldn't recognize me who I am now, but I wouldn't recognize myself without you and McCall. Really, the the the. He was. I would say a work soulmate. We were absolutely together on accepting when it came to feminism. I was a radical feminist and he was a social feminist. He thought, yes, yeah, women should should get, you know, equal this, equal that. Oh, gee, thank you. Uh, but after we have the revolution. And I said, no, you need women free before the revolution so that men can learn to make coffee. No? So... Uh, we did. We didn't have stand-up, sit-down arguments about that, but he did worry when I became a feminist and started getting women friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And this I, is an appropriate point to uh, have our break. Um, but thanks ever so much. It's just entrancing listening to you. Thank you very much for that. If the second half is half as good as the first half, it'll be absolutely superb. So will you please welcome back a friend of us all, Mr Ian Clayton. <laughs> and, uh, and the lady who's already won a, a place in our hearts and, and will remember this night and will remember you for a long, long time, is Peggy Seeger. I was clapping for myself. That's good. That's good. And my kids would say, par for the course. Let's talk about, once you became esconced in, in, in London, you started seriously with the music events. And the Singers Club was one of the things that you founded with, with Ewan. And it was in various pubs across London. I, I think the Pinder of Wakefield was a famous pub that you, you had it in. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that you might scold me for, but I'm going to ask you anyhow. There were a lot of rules involved with that singers club. It began as the Ballads and Blues in yeah. 1955. It began before I turned up here in 57. And it had people like Alan Lomax and Bert Lloyd and Ewan McCall and um, uh, Fitzroy Coleman, Shirley Collins. And uh, I just melded in at that point 
And uh, it became the singers club when uh, our manager who was managing ballads and blues, I, Ewan and I went off to America. When we came back, he'd scarpered with the name and had gone somewhere else and started what I called a folk club spelling at P-H-O-L-K. And uh, nobody laughed. They're not listening anymore. <laughs> so uh, the Singers Club was meant for singers, not necessarily for instrumentalists. The song was the most important. Uh, and at one point, I mean, this was when a lot of British singers were still singing American songs. Now, I was brought up listening to the real thing, and you'll find out why in the, in the, in the, in the book. Uh, I was steeped in recordings that my father had made, that Alan Lomax had made, and that all of the collectors that my father sent out had made. I was steeped in the actual recordings as my mother took down the music to go into Alan Lomax's books. So I knew how Lead Belly sang the Rock Island line. Oh, the Rock Island line is a road to ride. It's the Rock Island line. It's a very fine. And it, the experience of this black man who was in a prison for murder and his life was, you've, you've no idea. Even if you read about it, even if you see films about it, you have no idea what those prisons were like, and still some of them for black people in America. So I, when I heard Lonnie Donegan singing it, or oh, the Rock Island Line is a road to ride, or oh, the Rock Island Line is a very far, with Cockney vowels and that smart... Uh, I mean, he was doing what he knew how to do, but it was completely false, and this is the problem with um, Ewan McCall and myself, neither of us were actually, well, he was more than I was, but I learned from records. I learned from people who learned from people who learned from people. I was not born on an Appalachian cabin in, a, in an illiterate community, so I didn't know how these songs, they were not gut songs. I had heard them and identified with them as a child. So there was this London singer, and I forget what it was he was singing. It could have been Midnight Special. And it just sounded funny to me with the Cockney vowels. It sounded hilarious. And I'm sure with you being Yorkshire people, I am in Yorkshire, aren't I? You are. Oh, yes. I don't know where the broken bridge were led over to. <laughs> uh, so uh, it just... You would know if it's... I would not even try to sing a Yorkshire song. I wouldn't. It would be false. So I burst out laughing in the middle of his performance. I was in hysterical laughter, and I had to be taken out of the room. And the next next week, uh, I was taken to task by some of the regular members of the, of the, of the club and said, you don't laugh while somebody's singing a serious song. And I said, but, but it sounded funny to me. And we had a French member who used to come along. He said, well, when you sing French songs, I don't like it. And so then uh, Ewan turned to Bert. He said, oh, I wish you wouldn't sing Australian songs. It just doesn't sound right. And so then I turned to Ewan and I said, I wish you weren't going to sing Sam Bass was born in Indiana. It was his native home. It was so false, the whole thing. So that's when we formed the policy for our club, just our club, nobody else's. If you're on our stage and you're singing a folk song, you are a 
representative of your language, your culture, and where the song has come from. And we got, oh, we got called folk Nazis for that for decades. <laughs> but it emptied the club because it meant I was not singing German songs and the Israelis <laughs> were not singing Russian songs. And, and it was hand in hand with another rule that the, because we had our audience committee, which was wonderful. They said, we're getting tired of you singing the same old songs every week. It's I'm a rover, or seldom sober, or there's shanties, or there's mining songs that you sing over and over and over. So we want some new songs. So they kept a book, and they were, they were really religious about it. You couldn't sing the same traditional song more than once in three months, and we met every week. <laughs> I was the only one, and Ewan was the uh, only one, he had been brought up with a lot of songs. I had a big repertoire, so I brought out things that I hadn't sung for years. And everybody else started learning new songs in their own. Bert Lloyd went back to English songs and songs that he had translated from, from Scottish into English and then said they were English songs, uh, which is a perfectly good thing to do. Oh, the God, they're coming for me. I better speak quickly. <laughs> uh, I thought police. Uh, so, so that's why we had the policy and it was only you can do what you want when you're having a shower or you're ironing or you're walking along but when you're on a stage singing a folk song you are a representative of an age-old culture and it has the style is important uh, so when I sing um, you know Maddie Groves of the way, oh golly, what is his name? Oh, I try to imitate him as much as I can. <laughs> uh, and it's a fantastic ballad and it lasts about seven minutes. And I'm only going to do the first verse because once I start singing a ballad, I can't stop till I come to the end. First to come down was dressed in red. Next to come down was green. Last come down the Lord Daniel's wife, fine as any queen, queen, fine as any queen. I was going to go on to the second. No, no, no. So you you drown, you drown in that. You drown in it once you learn the way of singing it, so that the song is the most important, and you're not. You're not pushing your voice. You're not pushing your own self. You are pushing a tradition. So that's what that was. It was the policy. Uh, you like that? Yeah. Bob, Bob Dylan turned up one night. What, what did he sing? Did he sing that? You couldn't hear him. All right. <laughs> yeah. And, I did, and he wasn't Bob's, Bob Dylan then. He was Robert Zimmerman. Yeah. I, I first met him when he came for my autograph. <laughs> <laughs> We were somewhere in Minnesota, I think in Minneapolis, I'm not too sure, when this very, and I was only reminded of it the next year when we went back to the same place. Says, you remember that little student who followed you around? Mm. And he had a little briefcase. I remember him because he followed us around and he listened and he listened and he listened and he came up for, for our autographs and, uh, and he said, you know who that, that is? I said, he said it's Bob Dylan so I said who's Bob Dylan mm. I didn't know I had no idea mm. but by the time he came over here 
I think he was Bob Dylan. He wasn't Robert Zimmerman anymore. And uh, I, I have respect for him. I think he's done what I did. I plagiarize all over the place, but generally I, I own up when I take something, and I don't know that he's owned up all the time. No, he hasn't. And he's done some fabulous songs and some terrible songs, I think. Yeah. And his early recordings, essentially he's not a singer, and he admitted this, uh, but he sings, he's very authentic, and, uh, and he's very rich. <laughs> And uh, he's written a book the same title as yours. Bringing it all back on. And he copied you, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But oh. it saved me when that policeman drew, stopped me on my van when yeah. I was in California. And I'm going way over the speed limit. Blue lights, blue lights, blue lights. So I draw up and I have a motor home at that time, a short one, 21 feet. And uh, <clears throat> he's a very handsome, this policeman. He stuck his head in the window and said, did you know how fast you were going? I said, I only looked at it when I saw the blue lights. I'm very sorry. I was writing a song. And he said, oh, you write songs. And uh, he says, I write songs too. And so we got into a conversation with this policeman and me. He says, what was your song about? So we started talking about it. And uh, <clears throat> he said, uh, are you here? Why are you here? You have a funny accent because I developed an English accent over my 30 years with you, and I'm, I know I'm digressing, but it's, it's right. for the purpose. It's all right, I like it. So, so anyway, uh, he says, what's your song about? So we start talking, and he said, and you're a musician, and you play the... I said, yes, and I, what do you play? I said, I play six instruments. Well, he didn't think much of that. And he said, and do you know Joni and Bobby? And I said, well, jo Joni came for my, uh, my my autograph in Newport Festival. Yes, I remember Joan, Joan Baez. And Bob Dylan came for my autograph in Minnesota. He said, but that didn't mean much to him. <clears throat> but uh, we talked about our songs, and he let me off with a, with a warning. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Joni and Bobby. Uh, so, but an interesting th the, the interesting thing about the Bob Dylan for all the music colleges is that I think it was only his second time he'd ever sung a song in England. He came over to know that play, The Madhouse on Castle Street. Yep. And Martin Carthy tells that story about how he, he welcomed him the night before. Martin McCarthy did the right thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, but when Bob Dylan sang at our club, he sang down like this. And, yeah, yeah. and you couldn't hear him. And uh, it, it didn't make any sense. We didn't have microphones. The early folk clubs, as you know, all in mm. Los Old Geezers here, we did not have microphones. And you had to pitch your voice to the back really? of, yeah. Anyhow, enough of him. Um, <laughs> you, the fire, the political fire, stayed in your belly and in Ewan's belly right the way through. And... I'm thinking, I'm on to the 1980s now, and the, the miners' strike, which is something that interests us round here, started. And you both became quite active in the, the miners' strike, doing benefits and writing new songs. Well, we got involved in a lot of different, different when a new issue came to the fore, mm. we wrote songs about anti-apartheid, we wrote about teacher strike, printer strike, uh, minor strike, textile strike. Uh, we'd been, because uh, Ewan had gut politics. He was brought up, if you read his autobiography, which is called Journeyman, 
The best part of it is the first quarter inch, which takes him up to age 20. And the book is probably about an inch and a half. It gets more bogged down in ideas and more, uh, and it's not so interesting, it's not so gut interesting. But his childhood up to the age of 20 was honestly, to me, it was mind-blowing, so different f from mine. And, and his hatred of the, the Tories and of the system were in his guts, so he, he, never, he never gave up that. Mine was more, I was, I call myself the tail in his comet. I was his echo chamber for a long time. My interest was more, uh, it, it, I won't say it was intellectual, but it was the logic of the system. And we went into so many working class communities and worked with so many different uh, uh, over and over. Did, did he ever take you to where he was from? He was from Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. He took me there before the, the developers got it. Yeah. it. It's already been swept away once from what he knew. And then a, what was built there was tickety-tackety stuff. And they swept that away and they put something else in, in Salford. It was little cobbled streets with uh, can, the ends of cannon on the, uh, uh, that, that's what they had. On the end of the, the alleyways. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Two, up, should, two up, two down. We should hear a, a song that you, you, did, you performed during the miners' strike. I, I love this song. I once nicked it for a, a documentary, a television documentary that I was doing. Oh, I hope you did. You, you'll have got some royalty off it. Yeah. <laughs> you don't nick it, you adopt it. No. <laughs> In the year of 84, shit really hit the fan. When Mac the Knife, McGregor, Maggie Thatcher's hatchet man said another 20 bits will have to close to meet the plan and we'll dump another 20,000 miners. Daddy, were you with the first of the first? Did you tell the NCB to do its worst? Or did you save your lily liver, sell the union down the river, a scam, a black leg one forever cursed? Arthur Scargill heard the news, he cried, this Yankee slob is a gift from Cowboy Reagan and is here to steal our jobs. Do an axe job on the union for the crummy Thatcher mob, but we'll show him what it means to be a miner. Daddy, did you man the picket line? Did you fight to save the future of the mines? Or did you take the wrong direction? Did you squeal for police protection? Did you let him see your India rubber spine? Yorkshire came out on strike and said it's evident The only way to stop McGregor and the government Is to bring the lads out everywhere from Scotland down to Kent And we'll show them what it means to be a miner Daddy, what did you do in the strike? Did you stand there with your mates and join the fight? Or did you show a yellow belly? Spill your guts out on the belly Did you let the We took our oldest son down a mine during that, and it, it had an amazing effect on him. And our youngest son did, and, and myself, did all the instrumentation on that, and also joining in with the choruses. And while we did that, 
and we were taking the tape that we made, a cassette, and he stayed in miners' homes. And it made, you know, it doesn't do just to have a mental idea of this. Once you see the way, you know, Callum came and he said, he said, Mom, there's a, there's a piss pot under the bed. Um, what if I want to do the other business? I said, you could use, use the piss pot under the bed. <laughs> yeah, because we had stayed in miners' homes. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. Carry on with the politics then, because Greenham was a, a big thing for you. Let's come away from you now. Yeah. You, you, um, you were a, an early supporter of the women at Greenham Common. Well, we sang for them. Uh, we were asked to sing for them when they were marched from Newport. And we sang for them in Melksham. And it was a, a fantastic concert because they were all asleep. They attended it with their ch babies in buggies and themselves falling asleep. They were the marchers, and, then, and it was a benefit, so they would have money to go further. I don't know how far Melksham is from, from, from uh, where the, New, New, Newbury. Uh, and that was really something. They were exhausted. Greenham was my movement, beginning a movement into feminism. I, I, I would say I'd already written uh, "Gonna Be an Engineer," and I'd already made I think the, my other different, therefore equal. Because um, when I wrote "Gonna Be an Engineer," I wrote that for a, 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 a critics group theater performance. I never wanted to be an engineer, uh, and it was full of big chords, different chords, lots of range, lots of words. And it was about freeing yourself as an engineer. So when I would go to feminist meetings, they'd say, oh, that's a wonderful song. Now sing us another one. What? I had American folk songs where, you know, she's got a baby in her arms and he's left. Or he's taken her down to the river and shoved her in because she's pregnant. Or he's, he, you know, the, the American folk songs, I'll tell you, women come out very badly in those. Uh, so I, then I felt I had to start writing songs about different feminist issues, and I was catapulted mm. uh, because I started writing them like radio ballads. Because the best way of writing a song about something you know bugger all about is you go to find somebody who does know about it and record it. And essentially, if I, there's a song in everybody, I don't know if I've already said that tonight, I probably have, because I want everybody to realize we are all unique. And there's a song in all of us once we really get underneath the, 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 our feelings of what we want people to think about us. Uh, and so uh, I started writing songs interviewing women who'd been beaten up by their husbands. Uh, I made ones and all different types of songs. Uh, which I felt was necessary because you can't just sing the same old type of song. There's, I'm getting off the subject. You know, no, no, it's fine. It's difficult for you by this point, though, because you and sadly died, and you were left, this is my words, not yours, but you were left kind of floundering on the live music scene because the people who booked the folk clubs and the gigs, and they, they didn't want you without you, and did they? Well, I fell in love with my best friend a year before he died. Yes. And that was <clears throat> what the poems say, what everybody says. 
that love is an illness, love just takes you over. I got in 1989 what you and got in 1955, 57, 56, uh, when he saw me. He was overcome and I was overcome, but it was a year before he died. Uh, He got ill 10 years before he died. And the last two years were bad. They They were bad. He was wonderful through it all. He was amazing, extraordinary. But he was failing, and I, I'm not a good carer. I'm not. Um, so, uh, Irene took me up, and she, she literally saved me at that time. I was bereft when Ewan died. So we went and tried to get. To, <laughs> we tried to. I tried to start out again. We tried to start out together, and the story is in there where one person that we went to to be our agent said that I was a leftover of a dead duo and that I wasn't commercially viable and I was no spring chicken. I was told that to my face when I was 55. So uh, Irene picked me up and we made a marvelous CD called Almost Commercially Viable. (laughs) And and we sang together and called ourselves No Spring Chickens. Yeah. And we went out on tour with that. It's a wonderful CD. I love it. And I made a lot of love songs for her. I never made any love songs for you. And so Irene comes over in this book as, as a saviour in more ways than one. She's, she's, mm. And she's so kind to you. Because there came the point where you decided to move back to America. Mm. And you persuaded her to go... Yeah, but she didn't want to come. I know. But she went to be with you. Yeah, finally, after, you know, yeah. she did. But we, we're not compatible to live together. Not really. We, we live completely differently. We want completely different things of life. Uh, but I'm hoping she, she lives in New Zealand. I haven't seen her in four years. Because I got sick, she got sick, then COVID came. And then ecologically, it doesn't make sense to, to get in a plane and 36 hours from one end to the other. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. So we talk every morning and every night for an hour. And uh, Yes, so yeah, let's find out what we're doing. The she time- says, well, I breathed today. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I, I, I hoovered the rug because the dog was, <laughs> she's got a dog now. And I think she gets more pleasure from the dog than she'd get from living with me. <laughs> The time came to move back to England. Yeah. You say that you feel more English than American. Well, I have, I have, I have sworn allegiance to the Queen. Have you? No. No. I never will. <laughs> Even if they made me. Well, I, I, well, have... I once had to do in court. Uh, <laughs> well, I, well, I had to, I had to, uh, uh, I had to get a, an English passport at one point, and it was a fly-blown office in Lincoln's Inn Field, a solicitor, in front of her, this dreadful picture of the Queen that had just fly, fly shit all over it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? I mean, were you missing England? What is it about Oh, England? yes. Oh, I, I loved England from the moment I landed here. I adored it. So you have to go a long way in America to get anything different. You do. Uh, it has some of the most extraordinary ge- geography that you could imagine. 
um, but you have to drive and drive and drive and drive and get to it. And even then, it's, it's overcome with a lot of tourists, or it's already been bought, bought up by the rich, or it's in country that's so poor and so sad, like some of West Virginia and East Kentucky and, and the, the top of North Carolina. Uh, but I lived in Asheville. I went there and I stayed in Asheville for 12 years. And then I started teaching songwriting at Northeastern University in Boston. In Boston. And at a, a certain point, I thought, I, I, I want to go back to that little island, you know, where you only have to travel 10 miles north and you're in a different ecological era. It's wonderful. And you I had a nice surprise a when I read that you'd like to live at York. I would have loved to live in York, but that east wind just used to slice me to ribbons. <laughs> Yeah, I would, I would have loved it. I went to, to have a look at York, and I lived there for three months in a little stable. I just decamped in 1993, I think it would have been, yeah. somewhere around then. Was that in Bubwith? Sorry? In, in Bubwith, Brayton. B Brayton, it's yeah, a yeah. tiny little, Near tiny Selby, little. I know. Yeah, that's yeah. it, yeah. And I just I just uh, wrote the book there and and drove into York and walked around York. That was before Betty's didn't have miles of tourists trying to get into it. Uh -huh. Yeah, you could actually have breakfast at Betty's every morning if you wanted. Uh, and I I just love this country, and it breaks my heart to see it committing suicide. It does. Yes. But we're doing something about it. We're going to. It's got, everybody's trying. Mm. A lot of people are trying. And find some way to do something, especially saving all of our green spaces. That's the main thing. They're killing Oxford with, with housing developments. They make lots and lots and lots of jobs for the universities there, but no houses. And mm. then they say, we need housing. And then they take all the green spaces that we have. So mm. that's my job now trying to save a field. <laughs> but, Little boxes. Well, people need homes, but yeah. but they're getting houses. There is a difference. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we're going to come to the time where we open up to the audience, but before we do it, there's the, the astonishing version of first time I ever I saw your face. We've got, put it up, it, it's uh, zero 05. <laughs> Song. We're not calling it. That, that's the two ends of it. I just thought 
why not try it? It, it was suggested yeah. by my daughter's boyfriend, who is broadcaster. Yeah. And broadcaster it does some amazing. You have to sing unaccompanied. And I sang a number of unaccompanied songs for him. I was a little bit drunk, I must admit. <laughs> and he made a fantastic meal. And my daughter said, now sing this without any accompaniment. Now sing this without any accompaniment. Because he had to have them without accompaniment. And he's done some fantastic uh, rave music, really, yeah. just using this and that and the other. Broadcaster, look him up. There's a full album of it, isn't uh -huh, there? Yeah. Just uh, some people sent a couple of questions in, some friends of mine. There's one here from uh, Professor Ayat at, at Purdue University in Indianapolis. She, she wants to know the connection between music and social movements in the 60s, was it easier to write protest songs then than perhaps it is now? Well, we had the big unions then, and we had <clears throat> marches. You could march legally. Now, now we're, all these things are being taken away from us, and the cult of the individual has written, risen up since then, and the working-class communities have been broken up, and the protests... I don't... I'm not very good at writing protest songs, not, not really. I had a try at writing one for XR Rebellion, but I was mistaken that they, because the modern one, people, they don't sing tunes. The, the young people, they don't know what a tune is, a lot of them, and they, they, they have the beat and the riff and all of that. I don't know if I'm speaking for you, oh, Gray, but... Uh, on, in, on, yeah, he's re looking at his phone. <laughs> That's okay. He's, he's, he is a lovely young man. And for me, anybody under 50 is still young. And he's older than he looks, I'll tell you. Yeah. yeah. But actually, you're the type that I would have gone for when I was 20. Yeah. So, time has allowed you to escape. But and, you know, these these days are I'm I'm getting a bit weary of apocalyptic songs about what's coming up, and I think what we need to do is is write what I call wedge songs. I mean I don't have a brand. You can't say that sounds like a Peggy Seeger song. At least I don't think so, <laughs> because I've written something that is so violent about ex extraordinary rendition, that picking up people off the streets and taking them to Guantanamo. It's called Shadow Prisoners. And it really is violent. And then I've written one that sounds like an Elizabethan love song. And then I've written a funny one with a da-di-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I've written a number of different styles because that's what I like to do. But a wedge song, I think, in terms of political importance, if you've brought, bought the album, look at the song called Lubrication. Okay? It begins and you think it's about one thing and you immediately start to salivate and it turns out to be about something else. But I get you in by making you think it is about this that entrances you and then it turns into something else. So... Um, so it's a sex song about oil? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, 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 not really. It's a, it's a sex song about tectonic plates. Okay. Similar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you, so, <clears throat> so I'm not into telling people 
how they should do this or should do that because a lot of the old protest songs and you should get out on the demonstration and do this you should object to that what I'm trying to do is make uh, you, many people they probably already know all this it just has to be brought to the fore because we're in severe trouble with climate change it's climate apocalypse and we have to start referring to it as that and having uh, it's not something that's being plonked down on us it's another aspect of the same thing that makes the blood throw through our veins it's the same aspect of what makes the trees talk to each other and the fungi underneath the ground talk. Oh. The, the, the whole earth is moving and we're moving and it makes you feel that you can do something if, when you understand that we are part of what the earth is. That's what lubrication is. That's what the song is about. Yeah. Well... I've got another question from Julian Moore, who's, who's head of... I don't know if that was a good answer or not. It's a great answer. Contemporary Classical at uh, the festival, and she said um, Ruth Crawford Seeger is a very seen as a very important contemporary composer now. My mother. My mother. How, how aware of this were you when you were young, and did she have any influence on, on, your, on, on your music? I blame it on patriarchy. My father, I think, was jealous that my mother was a better composer than he was. And she had been composing since she was 15. And she made some, she didn't have a big output uh, when she was 15. It was fairly, it was stuff for the, she taught piano at age 15. And she made up little pieces for her, for her students. And then she started getting interested in making an American form of music. And I... If she was alive now, I would argue that, because the music that she made doesn't sound any more American than Schoenberg or any other thing. Once you get dissonant enough and modern enough, it can be from anywhere. It really can be. Yeah. But she made up very, very dissonant music, and that's what brought her and my father together. She came to study music with my father. He was 15 years older than she was. They fell in love, and then he decided but it was music for musicians, and that is what it is. It's music for musicians, because it's a lot of it makes you feel very restless. A lot of it's very mental. My favorite piece of hers lasts a minute and ten seconds, and it's all in octaves. And it goes from the bottom of the piano right to the top, plays around a little bit, then comes right back down again. It is actually a mathematical theorem set to the way the accents are. It's piano study in mixed accents. This wasn't the mother I grew up with, and it was, she was never mentioned that she had made up these unbelievable things. I mean... I, I was in, incensed when I found out at 35 some of the things she had written. Uh, and there was even a program on the BBC about 20 years ago where there was a number of panelists who actually said, and, and the American modernist composer Henry Cowell had just won an award <laughs> posthumously for his work where he played with his elbows uh, this, some of this music that, that, that the modernist composers did was hilarious and these, they all agreed that if she had been a man she would have gotten the award 
They actually, all of them, said that. So uh, I didn't find out till I was 35, and I'm still incensed about that. I'm very angry about that. I, I'm going to open up to the to the floor now. Has anybody got a burning desire to ask a question? Hi, Peggy. It's not really a question. It's just uh, that we've been following your uh, your uh, Peggy at five on YouTube, and they've been superb. We just really like to say uh, how much we've enjoyed them. Uh, but there's one that we really bond with. And it's the one that he did on lullabies, because we had a stay, as you called it, a stay awake child, and we had one as well, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and we did exactly the same as you. But we, our, our song was what, what, what was it? Father's chest, wasn't it? Yeah, grandfather's uh, oh, clock. Grand, grandfather's. Grandfather's clock that stood so. Grandfather's clock was too old That's for it. the shell, <laughs> and that actually put the child to sleep. All ch all children need all they need is rhythm. Yeah, Paddy Tunney. But if anybody here has not seen them, they, they want to check them out because they are superb. They're so they're fantastic and they're so real. It's Peggy at five on That's Sunday. It. Yeah. I'm starting another one on Facebook called Your Saturday Song, which is a song every every Saturday, either made up by me or made up by someone else, just so. And then the different types of songs, but uh, that was during lockdown, and I got a lot from that as well as you did. So thank you. And the song is called "Lullaby for a Very New Baby." Yeah. yeah. She was the one who was talking in the yeah. Yeah. Rufus Wainwright is one of his most recent singles. Is a, a beautiful version of one of your. One of your great songs from the last 25 years, Heading for Home. Yeah. wonder if it's... Could, could you just talk about kind of your interaction with Rufus about that and kind of what you've said to each other about, about his version? I've just told him that I love it. I don't love everything that Rufus does and he doesn't love everything that I do. But I... Uh, I really love what he's done. It's absolutely simple. He's kept the simplicity of it. And some of his recordings aren't... Uh, don't, I think sometimes don't do justice to the song because they get over-recorded. Once you've discovered what a recording deck will do, and my son has a recording deck that's about four feet long, and he can do almost anything on it. Both of my sons do that. Uh, they're tempted to do all of those things. So the, the, the recent recording of First Time Ever that I've made uh, is just piano with a tiny little bit of, of, a, of a synth instrument with it. And it's very, very simple. So what Rufus has done, and I've written to him, I've said, absolutely wonderful. Mm -hmm. Hi, Peggy. Um, just wondering, do you, do you think that the, the folk song and the, the old spiritual songs, that they're becoming a bit of a lost art these days, that nobody's paying as much interest in them. There was a, there was a great documentary uh, a few years back, American Epic, which was going back and kind of looking into all of those. I think Jack White was involved in it, but it, it just feels like they're becoming a bit of a lost art. 
I didn't get what the question. The old, the old American spirituals and old, and, and old geographical based folk songs. Mm -hmm. um, there was an interest in them a few years ago. Um, there, were, there was a documentary on television about them. But Richard's asking if he thinks that they're a bit of a lost art these days. Are they? Are they disappearing? I really don't know. I'm not in America. America's where they come from, and I, I, there's a, a kind of a, a, a looseness about a lot of the American gospel songs, leaning into them and playing with the rhythm and jumping the rhythm and coming late in the rhythm that I think is a little, a little bit difficult for some English and UK singers. It's, it's, the, it's the black influence that comes from slave days. That's where those spirituals come from. And also maybe we've lost faith in uh, the idea of God. Full stop. I don't know. We need comfort songs. We desperately need comfort songs. But it's too easy to make ones that are just, you know, custard. It's, it's very interesting you say it, very interesting you say that because I mean I'm I'm not a believer in God, but what I've found very recently is I've been listening to lots of old spiritual music, especially stuff Johnny Cash did in the gospel days, etc. And I've been finding comfort in them <laughs> and taking a lot of like joy from that almost, even though yeah. I'm not a believer. Yeah, well, when you say there was a lot of interest, how did it manifest itself? Who did it? Where? Oh, so there was a there was a documentary called American Epic that um, <clears throat> Jack White from the White Stripes was involved in, but then he had uh, people like Elton John and mm -hmm. uh, Nas, who's a famous hip hop artist, recreating these old spiritual songs in a modern in a modern twist. Yeah, uh, I think we need songs we can all sing together. I really do. At Greenham. Uh, we we had a lot of chants and songs that had simple choruses. There was one thing we did at Greenham that was, I mean, we sat with our backs to those to those big gates for days and days and weeks and weeks. Uh, I wasn't at Greenham uh, in the daytime. Mostly later on, I came along at night. I was on night shift because the Greenham people in the day they'd been there all day and they needed a rest at night so we had night shifts coming on but and then when we had the day shifts there was one interesting thing that we did that just proved that we really need to work together at learning how to sing because the only time the English and the Scots get together is in church when do we or when they're drunk what, what do we and then we don't sing folk songs we don't sing spirituals at least um, it's a long time since I've been in a pub inebriated, I'm afraid I can't take it anymore. Uh, so what do we have to sing together? But one of the things we did to show, we need something that, that attaches us to each other so we can hear each other. Uh, Greenham, we, we sat with our backs to those and we sang whatever we could think of. But somebody had an idea to do this and started humming a note. Da, and everybody started humming the note. Da, now, if you can do that, da, I can't hear you. Hum it. Da, you have to breathe out when you have to sing. Breathe out first, and then you'll take a big breath in. So everybody breathe out. Shh. 
Now you're taking in a good breath. Da. Now whenever I change, you have to follow. Da. question this time how, out of all the instruments you play which gives you the most pleasure and which do you love the sound of I started playing the piano when I was six and by the time I was 15 I was really good I was playing a lot of the really difficult piano stuff and I was 
practicing two or three hours a day, which was hard for a 15-year-old. And I kept that up until I went to college, and then I didn't have, I didn't have a, uh, a piano anymore. I learned to play by ear, and I learned to play according to the, and I loved it. I had very, uh, I stopped playing. I, I never had the nerve to play in, at recitals. I mean, my mantra was I never got through a recital in one piece, nor got through one piece in a recital. I, you know, I only had to miss one note and I would panic. Whereas folk music, you miss a note, maybe you make a mistake, and then you make it again and then you resolve it and people think you're very clever. Uh, so I, but the piano is what I'm most going to now because this arthritis thing on my finger has literally floored me for banjoid guitar and auto harp, anything that I have to do delicate. But I thump away on the piano and I make very simple accompaniments like I did. Do look up the new version of First Time Ever. Just go on YouTube and say First Time Ever. And I think we'll, we'll have a look at you playing piano. Have we got the Jules Holland clips? <laughs>
Lovely way to finish. Yeah. Yeah. We have got one more question, actually. I, I forgot. To, uh, am I taking you back to guest house tonight, or is it Dre? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I would be cradle-robbing with either of you. <laughs> and um, if, if you go, uh, if you haven't had enough of, uh, of Peggy, and I'm sure you haven't, there's uh, an interview on, on the Strange Brew podcast that Jason runs with Peggy, so there you go. And the man himself, Ian Clayton. Truly wonderful, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart, the truly wonderful Peggy Seeger. That's it, stand up.